All right. Well, good evening and welcome to the month of June and welcome to Revelation chapter 11. We are glad that you're here. Uh, we have a fascinating chapter tonight and one of the most dramatic moments of the tribulation that is going to happen in the tribulation happens tonight. So we're going to see that as well. We're glad that you're here. Those of you joining us by, by live stream, we welcome you wherever you are and however you may be joining us. We're glad that you have uh, joined us and looking forward to our study this evening. We're about one half of the way through Revelation. So tonight will put us at the halfway point. And the last, uh, the last half is very interesting as well to see what happens in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Tonight will get us to about the three and a half year, first three and a half year uh, point of the seven year tribulation. And that will wrap up tonight. It is good to be back with you after two Wednesdays away. I appreciate Dane leading uh, for me one week and Brother Dennis another week. And so, but it is good to be back with you all and look at the book of Revelation again. Let's pray together and we will get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to open up your word. It's a fascinating book that you've given to us. God, you've, you want us to know this information. You give, you've given it to us in your, in your life-giving word, your eternal, inerrant word. So, Lord, tonight, would you be our teacher? Would you speak to us what we need to know? And pray, Father, that you'd direct our paths and all that we do so we can please you integrating the word into our lives each day. Thank you for those who have joined us tonight here in, in person, First Baptist Church of Garland. And thank you, Father, for those joining us online as well. May your blessings be upon each of them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll turn to the chapter 11 of Revelation. I'll be reading, as I always do, from the ESV, uh, English Standard Version. And reminder, or as a reminder, again, of, uh, about the book of Revelation, the word Revelation means apocalypse. It means to unveil. It means something has been hidden but has now been made clear, uh, been uh, un unveiled to us. And so that's what the book of Revelation is, God unveiling uh, information to us about the end times. Written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, who, the uh, current country of, of Turkey. We talked about that. That's covered in chapters 2 and 3 of the book. John wrote it on the island of Patmos. Uh, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day one day on Sunday and received the vision from the Lord around 90 A.D., which had been about 60 years after Jesus was uh, crucified and resurrected and, and ascended back to heaven. Chapters 2 and 3, of course, the letters from the seven churches. Chapters 4 and 5, a vision of God on the throne in the throne room of heaven. Jesus is given the scroll, and he's the only one worthy to break the seals in the scroll and open it. He did that, and then the, the tribulation started whenever he did that, beginning in chapter 6. Seven seals were broken, followed by seven trumpet blasts, and each seal, and after each blast, there were things that happened, uh, a judgment that happened upon the earth. And so the first four of the seal judgments, uh, judgment on the earth, and, and then the last four trumpet blasts, there was judgment on the earth as well. We have looked at the first six of the trumpets. For, the first trumpet was the plague on vegetation uh, in chapter 8. Uh, the second trumpet, plague on the sea, also in all these from chapter 8. Third trumpet, the plague on the fresh waters. Fourth trumpet, the plague on the heavens and darkness. Fifth and sixth trumpets, uh, the demons were re released from the maximum security prison in hell where the worst of the demons have been kept. 
that have not been released on the earth yet. That's called the Abyss, A-B-Y-S-S, and that is the maximum security demon prison. They are now released to do harm to humans. And then the fifth trumpet, um, the uh, fallen star and locusts, and the sixth trumpet, of course, the four angels beyond the Euphrates River uh, are released. Then there's a break between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Uh, chapters 9 and 10 were interludes waiting on this seventh trumpet. So tonight, we're finally going to get to see the seventh trumpet blast and see what happens uh, whenever um, it is uh, uh, it blasts. So chapter 10, an angel and a smaller scroll was given. John ate it like, like uh, Ezekiel did and prophesied. And that was where we left off two weeks ago. So we're now to chapter 11. Let's look at, first of all, letter A on your outline, the new temple, verses 1 and 2, the new temple. John said, then I was given a measuring rod, probably a, a lightweight reed, very common back in those days, like a staff, he said. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. So, now we saw in chapter uh, uh, 10 as well as 11, John is no longer uh, just over in the corner watching the visions. Now he's participating in, in the vision. Now he's an active participant. So angel walked over. Here's a measuring rod. Measure the temple of God and the altar, he said, uh, and those who worship there. Verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample, the word means contempt, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Absolutely right. So we're about to see a preview of the second half of the tribulation. The word trample means contempt, so that means Jerusalem, the holy city. Every time you see the phrase holy city, it's always Jerusalem in Scripture. Jerusalem is going to be treated with contempt by Gentiles for 42 months, three and a half years. So, let's look at some of this, of, of what this means. First of all, John was given this measuring reed and set rod and, and said to measure the, the temple. Now, this happened two other times in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel the prophet was given a measuring rod and said measure the temple. In Revelation 21, that's going to come at the end of our study, John is given another measuring rod and told to measure the holy city, measure heaven. And so this then is the third time that it, it occurs in Scripture, or the second of the third time, three times. And why measure things? Well, measuring something in Scripture, all the way back to the, the law, measuring something meant ownership of it. If you measure it, it was yours. And so, this was a way of saying God has control of his temple. In Habakkuk 3, 6, God stood and measured the earth. He didn't measure the temple. He measured the earth. So, it means that God owns all of this and can do whatever he pleases. 
He owns the temple. He knows every dimension of it. He is in charge. Now, in verse 17, we're going to see later tonight that the word Almighty is using. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. That word Almighty uh, is only used 10 times in New Testament. Nine of those 10 times are in Revelation. And the word Almighty literally means the one who has his hand on everything. So, we're told here concerning the temple, God has his hand and on it, and he's in charge of it. Now, question, what temple? There is no temple. There were two temples in Israel's history. The first one built by Solomon, you remember, and destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came in, 586 B.C., leveled the city of Jerusalem, and leveled the temple. Well, as you remember, when they got to go back home, Nehemiah rebuilt it. So we have two. We have Solomon's temple and Nehemiah's temple. Nehemiah's temple wasn't nearly as grand and glorious. It was kind of a scaled-down version of the first one, and the people wept because the glory of God's temple was gone. So it wasn't nearly as, as glorious as the first one. So King Herod in the New Testament was always looking for ways to curry favor with the Jews. And he knew that the Jews thought this temple was paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. So he thought, why don't we refurbish it? Why don't we just pull out all the stops? I will be the favorite of the Jews forever if, if um, I just redo it. So Herod redid it. And it was magnificent. And the Jews went, oh my goodness, God's glory's returned. And Herod, they loved him for it. Remember one time Jesus and the disciples were walking out and, and the disciples said, Lord, look at this beautiful temple. Isn't it glorious now? And you remember what Jesus said? Yeah, there won't be one stone left on top of another when it's all done. He was right. Because in 70 A.D., Titus came in, oh, just about, what, 40 years after Jesus predicted that in Matthew 24, 2. Um, Titus came in and leveled the city of Jerusalem and leveled the temple. In fact, he did it so severely, it, it's hard today to kind of, it's, it's very difficult today to tell where everything went. Because it was so destroyed. And so the temple today, the location of where it was, we're not really certain because, boy, I mean, Titus, he did it good. He destroyed everything down to the foundation. So we know about where it is, but not exactly. And it's going to come into play. So two temples, both destroyed and nothing there. So what temple is he measuring? Well, there could be a third temple that will be built. That's what some people say. Evidently, there must be because now there's a temple present. So, will there be a physical temple built in during the tribulation? Or uh, is, is this symbolic? Or is there a temple in heaven? Or is the temple the church? Which is what some theologians say. 
I don't there's much. I personally don't think there's very much biblical proof. Now remember, I said Jesus and exegesis. I don't see much proof being exegeted that the new temple's the church. So it appears that there will be a third temple physically built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount where the first two were at the very same site of the first two temples during the three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, those of you who've been to Israel today, the Temple Mount is, is a fascinating place to visit. We always go there. Well, one time we couldn't. There was a little conflict, a little skirmish that happens in Israel sometimes. It was going on in that area between the Arabs and the Jews. So they said, best if we just go see something else. So we did. It's the only time we didn't get to it. But the Temple Mount is 36 acres. By comparison, the White House is 18 acres. So it's twice the size of the White House grounds. Um, as you go up to it, there is, um, uh, it seems impossible for, for me to think about that there will be, the Jews will be allowed to rebuild a third temple there, but the Bible talks about it, so it is going to happen. But the Jewish forces are preparing every day to rebuild it. Did you know that? Today, when you go to the Temple Mount, you, you see two stunning structures that are both Islamic. Both controlled by the, uh, by the Arabs, or the, by the Muslims. Uh, one is the Dome of the Rock. That's the big dome-shaped golden dome you see. The other one's beside it, the uh, Al-Asqa Mosque. Both of them are Jewish. These 36 acres are just about as sensitive as a tripwire. Whenever we visit up there, we're told by our guide... Men and women don't show any affection, stand apart from each other, don't joke, don't laugh, never laugh at anything, just don't laugh at all, don't joke, you're serious. That's the only time in the entire trip we don't joke, it's the only place you can't. They are very serious and they're watching you ever move. Muslim guards, they're watching you ever move. They don't mind you being there, they just watch what you do. Very sensitive area. The most desired and sensitive piece of real estate on the planet. That real estate there, one of the, it is the location of the holy sites for two of the three major world religions. The most holy site. So you can imagine. In that spot, the Jews will rebuild a physical temple. How's that going to happen? Carefully. They'll re, they will rebuild it. Now, you may say, well, are they planning it? Yes, they are. They are planning it down to the detail. There's an organization in the Jewish quarter today of Jerusalem called the Temple Institute. Google it sometime. It's very interesting. The Temple Institute, not now, wait till we're done, but um, a group of Jews who have dedicated themselves to getting everything prepared for this third temple that's what the Temple Institute's all about. It's for education. It's for public awareness. They have the pots and pans for the sacrifices built according to the regulations in the, in the law, in Leviticus. They have the sacred vessels ready to start serving. They have the priestly garments already made according to the law, ready for the priest to start. Um, a mode of the new holy temple complex is already, there's already been a, a diagram as to how they're going to do it. They have a, they have a rendering and a scale of, of what they're going to be building. The cornerstone's already ready and waiting. 
Uh, they will reinstitute animal sacrifices. They're getting ready for that. Students are being trained right now in the Temple Institute in the priesthood. So once the temple's built, they're ready to start offering animal sacrifices again. And they can't wait. Because they think it's what makes them right with God. We know Jesus was our sacrifice once for all. And then he entered into the heavens according to Hebrews. But the Jews are waiting for the Temple Institute's waiting, just waiting for this third temple to be built. There's another organization called the Faithful of the Temple Mount. And their motto is, listen to this, quote, our efforts will continue until the Israeli flag flies over the Dome of the Rock, end quote. Whoa, okay, that probably gets a lot of eyebrows raised. So the Jewish dream of this third temple being rebuilt has not died through the years. It is stronger than ever. So it appears what John measures is the new temple. It's also called the Tribulation Temple. This new third temple or Tribulation Temple that will be built in Israel during the, the, the uh, Tribulation on the Temple Mount site that's controlled by the, the, Jews, the uh, Muslims right now. Verse 2, he says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Why not? Well, if you remember in the Old Testament, that was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could only come so far near the presence of God unless they became Jewish. But now the Gentiles, God says in this passage, they're about to trample Jerusalem. And so God's saying, just don't give them any part at all. So, the outer court, don't measure it. Now, if they rebuild the site of the, of, of the new temple on the Temple Mount, let me just give you a little, little bit of, of, of history here. In fact, our guide that we go to Israel, he's convinced this is true, and he showed us why. Titus so completely destroyed the temple they couldn't tell where it was. The Dome of the Rock was built over what they thought was the old temple site. But it's just to the south of the old temple site, north of the old temple site, and there's room enough to build a temple there, was the original temple, Jewish temple. And the reason he can tell is whenever you turn, you, he took us to the site, you turn to your right and you see the eastern gate. We know the old temple site was, was in line with the eastern gate. Jesus is going to come back to the eastern gate, according to scripture and Jewish tradition. And so if you look at where it's lined up, it's off-centered. And so Jews are convinced the temple will be rebuilt without ever having to destroy the Dome of the Rock. It's off-centered. So the real location is where, in their minds, will be where this third temple is going to be built. So, where would the old court of the Gentiles, if it is, if that's true, where would the old court of the Gentiles be? It'd be the Dome of the Rock. Perfect, the Jews say. Absolutely. Don't give them any portion. They're not Jewish. They will be the ones persecuting Israel during this time. So don't give them any portion. So the Jews are, you're exactly right. The outer court would be the Dome of the Rock. So for 42 months, according to verse 2, 
The Antichrist will be at work in Jerusalem and anti-Semitism is going to be at fever pitch. You think the Jews have been persecuted so far? You just wait. These last three and a half years are going to be bad. Now, you know, you can already see in our world today that the tension between Jews and Palestinians, we hear it on the news all the time. We see the tension between the Arabs and the Jews. It's already present in Israel. Watch the national news. You'll see it all the time. And everyone watches it because the entire world has an opinion on it, not just Americans. The world has an opinion on who's right, the Jews or the Arabs. And everyone has an opinion. Even U.S. politicians have opinions. There are some politicians that favor Israel. And there are some that favor Arabs. And as I said Sunday morning, keep your eye on Israel. Keep your eye on who favors Israel and who does not. Politicians, leaders, keep an eye on who favors Israel and who doesn't. Because that will be key. So you can already see it. So you can imagine at the end time this fever pitch escalating of who's right. And there will be many people throughout the world who will side with the Arabs. And the Jewish persecution is going to be at a peak. God does something about it. Look at verse 3, letter B on your outline, the two witnesses. Verses 3 through 14. Verse 3, God said, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses during this time, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. How long is 1260 days? Three and a half years. There we go again. You may say, well, wait a minute, I did that by 365 days, doesn't add up. Their calendars are 360 days in those days, so 360. All of them were. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And so we stop at verse 6. Two witnesses are going to arise, persecution going on. Up until now, Israel has been a political force but not a spiritual force. Until now, it changes. Jerusalem is going to have a time of unrestrained sinfulness, and the witnesses are going to gather and speak out against the sinfulness in Jerusalem and all those people persecuting the Jews. And God's going to raise up two people. He'll grant them authority and protection. For three and a half years, they will be clothed in sackcloth, a sign of mourning as to what's happening in Jerusalem. And for three and a half years, they are going to preach God's word in Jerusalem. And the people are going to hate it. Now, this is a reference to Zechariah 4. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 and verse 14 prophesied this would happen. 
prophesied, predicted the two witnesses. He called them olive trees and lampstands. So why two witnesses? Well, what did the law say? Deuteronomy 19.15 says, For in something to be declared true, it had to have two witnesses, not one. So they are bearing truth to what's being said. But who are the witnesses? Who are these two men? First of all, we do know they're men because the, the masculine pronouns used repeatedly. So we know it's, we know it's two men. Their identity is not revealed to us. We don't know. So let's talk about some theories as to who they may be. Who are these two men at the end times will preach in Jerusalem the word of God? Well, Jews believe, the Jewish tradition is, that it will be Joshua from the Old Testament and Zerubbabel be, come back from heaven and they will preach. It'll be Joshua and Zerubbabel. Why Joshua and Zerubbabel? Because of, they believe, because of Jews, because of a reference to Zechariah, where remember he said the olive trees and lampstands and Joshua were the ones that brought them in the land. The olive trees, symbol of that. And, and the, and the uh, lampstand was Zerubbabel and the temple. He, was, he rebuilt the temple, was a part of it. And so they believe, Jews believe, the two men are going to be Joshua and Zerubbabel. Others believe that there will be Old Testament figures who come back from the heaven, just like the Jews believe. A lot of biblical scholars believe the two men will be Enoch and Elijah from the Old Testament. Why do you think these two men? Any guesses? Only two that never died. Exactly right. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after the judgment there have been two men that never died. Enoch in Genesis 5.24, just God took him home one day. And he was only about half the age of his contemporaries. So he wasn't an old man. God just loved his fellowship so much took him home. And the second one's Elijah, you know, the chariot of fire and went and went up in a chariot of fire. And two men never died. So these men are going to die. And so the Bible, a lot of scholars say, well, it had to be two men that came back. That, so they'll die now. So all the scriptures fulfilled. Maybe. That's very possible. But there's another theory uh, that probably has more Bible scholars leaning in that direction. And that is that the two are Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. And that's because they represent the law and the prophets. And they were the two on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? With Jesus. But if you see what they did in the verses I just read, did you see what they had the power to do? They would have the power to stop the rain from falling. Who did that in the Old Testament? Elijah. Mount, Mount Carmel. Didn't, didn't rain for how long? Three and a half years. How about that? So it may be Elijah. And the second one, Moses, it said he would have the power to turn the water to blood. Who did that? Moses in Egypt. So the powers they're going to have at the end times, same powers they had in the Old Testament. So because of this, most Bible scholars, I would say, there are some Bible scholars that lean toward Enoch and Elijah, but I would say probably most of them lean to the fact that it's probably Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses, come back from the dead, that preaches for three, three and a half years. Others believe, and these aren't as common, but there are out those, these Bible scholars out there who believe that these two lead, new leaders, 
they're, they're, they're not Old Testament figures. They're just contemporaries. They're people who living at the time. They are contemporaries of the day. They're alive at this time, and God's just going to raise them up and use them as spokesmen. That's possible, too. But uh, because we're not told they're Old Testament figures, we just assume they are because of what their powers they have to do. So these are the two witnesses that are going to be preaching. Three and a half years. Now, verse 7, let me read this. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So God protects them three and a half years. They don't like their message for three and a half years. But after three and a half years, the protection is removed. And the beast from the bottomless pit is going to show up. Where's the bottomless pit? It's the abyss. That's that super maximum security demon prison. And the beast is now mentioned for the first time in Revelation. And for the rest of Revelation, he's mentioned 36 times. So we're introduced to the beast. The beast is going to be released from this super maximum security demon prison. He's going to make war on these two men. He's, two men, he's going to conquer them. And he's going to kill them. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. What's the great city? Jerusalem. And the great bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, verse 9, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Let's look at that for a moment now. Two witnesses are slain. By the way, it says they were, they were witnesses. There's a huge difference between sharing a witness and being a witness, right? We can share a witness, not lose our lives. But when you are the witness, you die. These men didn't share a witness. They were the witness. And their lives were taken. Their bodies will lie in the streets of Jerusalem. And people will rejoice because they're dead. Folks, at the end times, people are going to hate the preaching of the Word of God. We are getting there. People will hate the Word of God that is preached. Now, what's interesting is they didn't bury their bodies, left them in the streets for three and a half days. And the reason is because all through the Bible, the worst indignity you could do to somebody is not give them a burial. That's why it's important whenever people were crucified, they threw them out in what's called the Valley of Hinnom. But people didn't claim them. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed of, of the criminals that died. And the worst thing you could do to somebody as far as to take away their dignity at their death was to not bury them. So it's on purpose. We're not giving them the dignity of a burial. We're glad they're gone. We hated their message. And Jerusalem is called symbolically here Sodom and Egypt. Did you notice that? God said, and their dead bodies lie on the street of that city that's called symbolically Sodom and Egypt. Why Sodom and Egypt? 
Well, what was Sodom known for? Wickedness, immorality, antagonism toward God. That describes Jerusalem. What was Egypt known for? Oppressing God's people, making life hard for them until they had to escape Egypt. So, it will be called symbolically in that day a city that is immoral, that is wicked, is antagonistic toward God, and oppresses God's people. What kind of wickedness was Sodom known for? You can say it, homosexuality. Our culture didn't like us to say that anymore. Homosexuality. What sin is being mainstreamed in our culture and world today that if you mention it or speak out against it, you're called names and people get angry if you oppose it? Homosexuality. Interesting that he calls it Sodom. That's the last day. Symbolically, Sodom. Now, verse 9, for three and a half days, no one will let their dead bodies be buried. And the, now notice it says the people will gaze at them from all tribes and languages and nations. What does it sound like? News coverage. Worldwide news coverage. Almost all Bible scholars agree with this verse in saying the two slain witnesses lying in the streets of Jerusalem at the end times, there will be immense news coverage of it. All tribes and nations and languages and peoples will watch. Wow, can you imagine? CNN, live from Jerusalem, they're still dead. And they show pictures of these two. Fox News, live from Jerusalem, CNBC, live from Jerusalem, ABC, CBS, live from Jerusalem. They're dead and the people are dancing in the streets. I can picture it. And everybody's going to be celebrating. I can imagine the news coverage of the celebration, dancing around the dead bodies, the marching and the dancing. It's going to be Mardi Gras for three and a half days. Dancing and singing and drinking and same-sex couples, I'm sure. And no one has to listen to God's word anymore. Man, what a party. Because it was tormenting to them according to Scripture. They preached. It tormented them. I like what Dr. Newell said, the New Testament scholar. He said, people accept religion. That's decent. It's respected. It's tolerated by our culture. But they hate surrender to God. It is intolerable to the world. They'll, they'll accept the fact you go to church. They like religion, okay. But when somebody surrender to God, they hate it. He's right. So the Bible says here that they even exchanged gifts. They made merry, and it was like Christmas. They were exchanging presents. So happy these two were dead. Now, folks, I got a Christmas card one time. It wasn't from any of you. I got a Christmas card one time that had Revelation 11.10 on it. All right, make merry and exchange gifts. No, it's out of context. They're making merry and exchanging gifts because the two witnesses are dead. It's ungodly people who are doing it. And they are so happy because the prophets 
have tormented the earth and they're dead. But hold on. The reports of the prophet's demise have been gradually exaggerated. Because one of the most dramatic moments, I believe, of the entire tribulation happens next. Read verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, verse 13, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Whoa, let's wait a second now. Let's back up to CNN and Fox News and this. Whoa, look at their reports. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God himself will enter the bodies of these two. And, and they, will, they will stand on their feet and great fear will fall on everybody. The Antichrist is in serious trouble from here on out. Once those witnesses rise, the Antichrist is doomed. Now, let's go back to our newscast. I can picture that, can't you? Live from Jerusalem. They, ah! They stood up. Everybody watching. The world watching by cameras. And they stand up on their feet and fear, worldwide fear, grips people. You know, the prophets didn't say anything. I would have wanted to. Hey, give me some of that cake and punch. It looks pretty good over there. Y'all been celebrating. I would want to, they didn't say a word. They stood up and immediately shoo, flew to heaven. I want to see that on, on Fox News, don't you? And the ABC and NBC and CBS. I want to see it. They might edit that out. I don't know. Immediately, they will go to heaven. And as soon as they do, they won't say a word. But as soon as they do, two things are going to happen. Everybody, everybody is going to hear a loud voice. Come up here. So they know God is the one in charge that's where they're going foreshadow of the rapture maybe or if it's already happened before the showing it we don't know but they will straight into heaven from the skies and the second thing is Jerusalem will immediately be hit with a massive earthquake one tenth of the city will fall think about that one tenth of the entire city of Jerusalem gone and 7,000 people will be killed. And it says everyone else will be terrified. Because they will have seen the, the dead rising. They'll stop their Mardi Gras partying and the drinking that's going on. It'll stop. They'll see them go to the, to the skies. They'll hear the voice and 
boom, an earthquake happens. Which Jerusalem is a very earthquake-prone city, by the way. Always has been. And it says, then they will give glory to God. Everybody will. Does that mean everybody's going to get saved? Nope. Don't confuse giving glory to God, being saved. They'll give glory to God. That means they're going to acknowledge where it came from. God was behind this. Because you remember whenever in the New Testament, Jesus and the Gospels would cast out demons? It said the demons gave glory to God. They weren't saved. Demons gave glory to God. They knew where the power came from. And people will do the same. They don't get saved. But they're going to give glory to God. Can you imagine? And then it said, verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So that's just a reference back to chapter 8 where the eagle stood and woe, woe, woe for what's about to come. So now we've seen everything has come to pass. The second woe, we're ready for the third one, which is the seventh trumpet. We'll do this quickly because there, there's really just very straightforward and not a lot to discuss from it. Letter C on your outline, the seventh trumpet, verses 15 and 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, finally, and, we were, and there were loud voices in heaven. Saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped. Saying, we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty who is and was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of the covenant was seen with his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now let's look at this quickly and then we'll close. Starting in 15, the, she the scene shifts from earth to heaven. We saw what's happening on earth. Now we're going to see what's happening in heaven. Verses 15 and 16. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and loud voices again. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Wait a minute. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. What does that sound like to you? Lord's prayer. Lord, may your earth, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, the long-awaited reign of Christ over the world is about to start. Contrast, right quick. The party and the revelry and the Mardi Gras and rebellion on earth and the worship and the reverence and the praise of God in heaven. Sharp contrast in this chapter, isn't there? First 14 verses. And then starting in verse 15. And he shall reign forever and ever. Not yet he won't. We'll have three and a half more years. What do they mean? He will reign forever and ever. And I think the best description I can give you of this is they know it's coming. The reign is coming, so they're celebrating now. The best analogy I can think of is election night and a campaign when they've won. The, the, the reigning hasn't started yet, but they know it's coming. Hey, we won tonight. And so it's kind of like campaign rally. The, the Lord Jesus is going to reign. 
but it doesn't say he's going to. It says he does, and he is, because it's what's called a prophetic present in, in the Greek language, where something is spoken, to, spoken of as a, as, a, as a present event, but it hasn't happened yet. He will reign forever and ever. Then notice verse 17, just a couple of interesting points, and we'll close. 17, he says, we give thanks to you, Lord. Lord God Almighty, we give thanks to you. The, the phrase, we give thanks, is only one word in Greek. It's the word eucharisto. What does it sound like? Eucharist. What's the Eucharist? Lord's Supper. That's exactly right. It's the only time uh, in Revelation we give thanks is mentioned. The Eucharist is mentioned. The Lord's Supper. Verse 19. Then God, uh, God's temple in heaven was open and the Ark of the Covenant was seen. Now, hold on a second. The temple in heaven was opened. Is, is there a temple in heaven? Well, no, there's not. doesn't appear to be an actual physical temple in heaven because we're told well, there's no need for one because Jesus is there. So, this has to be a, a vision of what he's seeing where John appeared to see what was heaven's counterpart to the earth. But notice he saw the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that interesting? You know the Ark of the Covenant. You know all the Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark movies about where's the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Well, some people say it was destroyed in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar invaded, what a lot of theologians believe. Others believe, Jews believe this, um, that it still rests in a cave on Mount Sinai, but God's protected it from being discovered because Jeremiah hid it in a cave on Mount Sinai, according to Jewish tradition, and it's never been found, and so they think God's protecting it. But it's interesting you mentioned the Ark of the Covenant that he sees, which represented God's presence, by the way. And then to close, there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail whenever God's temple was seen. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like to me Moses on Mount Sinai getting the law from God, doesn't it? Whenever he was up there, it said there were Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. It sounds like when Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And that's how our chapter ends. Notice, it begins with a temple. It closes with a temple. Measuring the temple at the first, and John's vision of the temple at the end. So now our study has reached the halfway point of the tribulation and starting next Wednesday night we will look at the last three and a half years of the seven year tribulation 702 we don't have time for questions or comments uh, as, but again if you have uh, anything that you'd like to ask or comment on I'll be at the front as soon as it's over if you're by live stream feel free to email me anything I'll be glad to respond let's pray together and we'll close Father, thank you again for your word, and thank you for your power that's going to be seen in the midst of party and revelry that's going on here, celebrating the fact that God's word no longer has to be heard. God, thank you that you empower come once again and remind everyone who you are. God, remind us of that every day, even this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.